0: Hello and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us again today is Dr. Eva Lansucht, who is a professor at the uh, Universidad San Francisco de Quito in Ecuador and also Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands.
1: Thank you so much for having me again, Chris.
0: So the paper we're going to be speaking about today is uh, the effectiveness of doctoral defense preparation methods. Mm -hmm. Um, But before we start, uh, I'd like to kind of follow up on the interview that we had last time, because the last paper we spoke about was um, a review of how people uh, in academia had been dealing with the COVID lockdown measures and being removed from, you know, the lifestyle that they had become uh, comfortable with, particularly parents and uh, the differences between male and female. Uh, academics. And we finished the interview with me asking you for some recommendations of things that uh, you know universities could do to assist in the future. So in the last, um, I, I guess it's been about six months since we spoke, have you noticed any of these changes at either of your universities?
1: That's a very good question. So I've seen at the time that there were lockdowns, and uh, especially during the Omicron wave, I thought that some of the aspects were perhaps implemented. There was understanding for academic parents. I think now that we are sort of fully back to normal, but still have people who at times are infected and have to shelter in place, it feels like now it's more a nuisance almost to the institution that there are still people who (laughs) happen to get sick
0: right uh i mean i can only comment on my situation here in japan and we're still at uh, a stage uh, that uh, i think they call it preparedness stage 1.5 so we can have in-class meetings we can have Mm -hmm. um uh, on campus activities, but uh anytime you're in an enclosed space, everyone has to mask up and uh, oh, I see. social distancing as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, how is it in uh, in Quito? Are they are you back in classrooms? Are you able to, you know, meet with people face to face, do normal activities?
1: Yes, we are fully back in the classroom. Some courses are still virtual, um, mm. but I think the vast majority of courses are. Back in person. Um, some of the courses last semester had hybrid options. That is not the case at the moment. Mm-hmm. I do think at times we have infections and need to pivot in the moment. And uh, we've had a viral infection here at home and we were waiting for our results to come in. So I, I quickly pivoted to an online class. And I think mm-hmm. we have developed the tools to do that. But the vast majority of restrictions have been lifted. Some people would still mask indoors, but I would say the vast majority don't. So I think it's uh, almost back to to normal.
0: Well, uh, that kind of leads us into the topic that we're going to be speaking about today, because there are various Mm -hmm. ways that um, doctoral defenses can be prepared for and also be undertaken. And so the paper we're speaking about today is uh, Effectiveness of Doctoral Defense Preparation Methods. Um, Most of the people who are listening probably know what a doctoral defense is, but as you note in your paper, there are kind of, there are different ways that this can occur. So for those listeners who are currently or considering studying for a doctorate, what is a defense?
1: Yes, so the defense comes typically after the writing of the dissertation and In general, it is in an oral format where examiners or committee members or opponents and all of that depends on the format of the defense, question the candidates about various parts of the thesis. Mm -hmm. Now, whether that happens before or after publication of the thesis and then with that comes as well the more the purpose of the defense that depends really on the country and and the format hmm.
0: and in your personal experience what was what was your defense like how is it undertaken
1: my defense was in the Netherlands so in the Netherlands the thesis is published physically published um before the defense so what happens is it's quite a long process be- between getting the signatures from your supervisor to actually the day of the defense and once you have the signatures, there's a committee who will review the thesis, um, send comments, and when they are happy with the way the comments are implemented, they will also sign for approval, and then you can actually plan the defense. And that means the defense is, of course, less of an examination and perhaps already more of a celebration, mm. but it's still, it still has the aspect of an exam, of a uh, and and you still want to do well, even though you know that failing is very unlikely, you still want to, to perform well. And on the day of the defense itself, it, the first step, so to say, is a presentation of about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And that is without a committee that is only for friends and family. The defense is public, so people typically invite friends, family, colleagues, uh, everybody they've collaborated with to come and attend the defense. And then after that presentation, that's when the committee is let into the room. And uh, that's a very formal setting because we have a person called a beetle who is in the um, following protocol, wearing the special attire, uh, holding the stick of the university. And this person leads the committee members to their place and as well asks everybody to stand up. And then uh, that's when the defense can start. And the defense itself lasts exactly one hour.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it is also the task of the beetle to come at exactly the hour to mark the end of the defense by tapping the stick on the, on the floor and saying, ora est, to say the hour is done. And that's um, essentially the one hour of the defense itself. Now what happens in that hour is then every committee member gets to ask typically one question. Now the committee members who come from farther, the external ones, get 15 minutes mm. 15 minutes to, to ask one question or uh, expand a bit on, can be a topic related to the first question. The idea is that's one big topic to address. And as we move through the members of the committee, time goes by and typically the last people to ask questions will be the supervisor or supervisors. We typically have a daily supervisor and a promoter. So it can happen that time is already passed and that they don't even get to, to ask a question. And that was my case. My I uh, think my time ran out when my daily supervisor had just started asking a question and then uh, <laughs> my, my promoter never got to ask a question.
0: It's very interesting that there's a, a there's a stick involved. Uh, this, it's just, uh, mm-hmm. uh, because I think this is something that uh, the reason why I chose this topic to interview you and to discuss, I think every country, even between universities, the procedure can be uh, quite different. Um, yes. And it's important when you're starting, or maybe during the process of, of you know, as you say, producing your uh, thesis, uh, to know exactly how it's going to end. So my process was I actually took it um in Japan so it was through a a medium like this I was using Mm -hmm. Skype at the time and uh, my supervisor was not allowed to be uh present and it was it took about two and a half hours and uh it wasn't very much of a celebration because I'd not met the people beforehand so I didn't Mm -hmm. know and shall we say, in the in the minutes leading up to uh, the, the it's called a viva in the in the UK, to the defense, I was I was quite unwell, because of the, the stress of it all. Um, mm-hmm. But it was opened up by the Fraser and the person who was the internal examiner, who was not my supervisor, but was the internal examiner of the university, who said, Well, first of all, the first thing I want to tell you is, um, you are definitely the main expert on this topic that we're going to talk about today. okay? So just try to put me at ease and just being like everything mm-hmm. that you do, all you have to do is explain it. But the thing is, uh, in the UK, oftentimes the defense will then lead to required changes. So I had my defense in February, and I didn't submit my final thesis until December and the thesis had a whole new chapter to it and a different organization and things that were required. So um, mm-hmm. it is important to know what to expect before you go into um, uh, a defense and perhaps prepare for that um, during your work, writing your thesis. So mm-hmm. in your literature review, you, you note several previously uh, covered preparation strategies that might seem a little bit obvious. Okay. So understanding the ideas that you put in, understanding that there has to be an intellectual approach to this investigation, just even rereading the thesis and becoming as familiar as possible uh, with it. Um, So in your opinion or from your experience, uh, why do you think that students sometimes don't make these types of preparations or, or enter the room not ready to do what's required of them?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the things that I came across in the literature review is how, where PhD candidates get their information from on how to prepare for the defense. And a lot of visits through friends, sometimes from the supervisor, but the vast majority is sort of hearsay from the ones who have already passed. And that can be great advice, but sometimes what works for one candidate Hmm. may not be the best thing for the other candidate. and over the past years or I should say over the past decade I've collected stories about doctoral defense and how people experienced their defense and how they're prepared and people typically talk about their preparation and this has ranged from people saying like, I didn't prepare anything because hmm. I did the research so I know what <laughs> to talk about to perhaps the polar opposite of that of people saying I went through every page and I wrote a summary of every page and I knew exactly what was in each paragraph on the day of the defense so if they would open page 37 I would know exactly what was on there Mm. so between that there is a vast array of, of possible ways to prepare and I was curious to see what actually works and what may may be good advice what can help doctoral students as they prepare for the event and um and what could be potentially improved as well
0: yeah i mean you become well this is my personal experience but i'm i'm sure that this is true of of many people because i've spoken about it their their final kind of year of putting that thesis together or you know six or seven months you become so personally connected to this document uh, that I I used to walk to work. It took about 20 25 minutes, and I would have the whole manuscript with a big bulldog clip on the top, and I would walk with it, writing, penciling and comments and 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 things like that. In fact, if, just just a moment. So this is a uh, an audio podcast, not a video podcast. But uh, uh, <laughs> Dr. Lansuk can actually see me. This is my, uh, you know, that my. Doctoral defense version of the thesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's ring bound. It has uh, so many coloured and different uh, sticky labels in it uh, to help me navigate through it. It still has lots of it still has the um, sticky labels that I wrote during my my defense. It's so important mm-hmm. to me. I, I keep it as an artifact of my uh, academic. Uh, achievement, uh, even though it's mm-hmm. been nearly ten years since I since I did it, so it, it it becomes a deeply personal part and a very important part of your life in preparation for the defence. So moving into the study itself, uh, can you give us some background into uh, the people you spoke to, the questions that you asked, and a kind of kind of overview of the study that this paper is based on?
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, so the paper is based on a large study that I did on the doctoral defense in general, and that was through a survey, so an online survey with both um, Likert scale type of um, of, of questions, so uh, closed questions, multiple choice questions, as well as open-ended questions. And particularly with regards to the doctoral defense itself and the preparation I looked at how people, which function they described that the doctoral defense had, being uh, confirmation, ceremonial uh, examination, celebration, as well as people had the space to to fill in things. Um, And I also had open-ended questions where I asked people how they prepared for the doctoral defense, and then asked them at the end if, in hindsight, they would have prepared differently for the defense. And most of the work in, in this paper is based on both the multiple choice questions related to the defense. And there I looked at whether they um, read about the doctoral defense on blogs, advice books, etc. I looked at whether they took a course to prepare for the defense, and I looked at whether they had a mock defense or not. Hmm. And then I put all of that together, and I looked at as well what they replied with regard to the the outcome of the defense. So whether they passed, had minor, major corrections. Hmm. I looked at whether they, um, what the length of the defense was, and I looked at the feelings associated that with. Nervousness before, during mm. and after defense while waiting for the outcome, mm. uh, as well as a, a number of other indicators of student sentiment, as well as some aspects of long-term impact of the defense on whether they felt their work was more publishable or less publishable or mm. the same after the defense.
0: How many different countries were represented? Uh, in your in your study so we've already noted the difference between what goes on in the Netherlands um, Mm -hmm. where a stick is involved and in the UK where there is very rarely any stick involved Mm -hmm. Um, how many different countries were represented in your data set
1: essentially I had participants from all inhabited continents um, and they had done their doctorates also in very internationally, so it gives a very good overview of the mm. different types of defenses that are used internationally, and it's especially in Europe where we find the largest differences and perhaps the typical things, the traditional things that mm. that shine through,
0: yeah, I would say I, it it does come down to uh history and a bit of pomp and circumstance and I'm sure that uh, mm-hmm. Cambridge University and Oxford University are different from Sheffield University and there may be a difference between uh Delft University and um I, I'm assuming it was Delft University yes, it. It was, yes. yeah so uh, and other universities in the Netherlands as well because you know as things get you know m- longer and more historical and uh, there's a there's a need to kind of maintain certain traditions that are very peculiar to to certain areas now mm-hmm. i was interested to see because you had both quantitative and qualitative data and this was something that we talked about when we had a had a discussion last time about the previous paper and the ways that you analyzed the data that you had mm-hmm. so you mentioned in your selection and application of methods of analysis that you attempted to mitigate a priori id ideas about the defense, so things that you would have thought about based on your own experience or uh, anecdotal information. Um, Now that the analysis is done, uh, what were your a priori ideas about defense preparation? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I was was really doubting whether any defense preparation at all is really necessary before I started to read the literature. I thought that just from my own experience that definitely I overprepared. So I thought maybe it wasn't necessary at all. Maybe I could have done just nothing as mm-hmm. I had from that one story that I, I ran on my blog where uh, the person said, well, I did research. I, I could just walk in and defend. Right. Um, so I was wondering maybe, maybe that. And then I was also wondering if, reading experiences and reading about other defenses on blogs is helpful, or maybe not. And I wasn't quite sure about that. And it's only after seeing the data that I realized it it only experiences in a setting that is similar to yours can serve. And I think that's also perhaps something that that was a mistake maybe that I made Mm. when I prepared for my defense is I read a lot of advice on the internet and Mm. a lot of it is from for example from the UK which is really that preparation for the Viva that can go page by page and you will have a lot of formative feedback at that moment still to change your thesis whereas Mm. in the Netherlands that doesn't happen because the thesis is already printed so looking at the data and showing on it it's when I realized it really has to be advice as applicable to your case and you cannot just prepare the same way for a different defense type.
0: Mm. Yeah, I remember uh, going through and I I think it was the University of Leicester had actually published a long list, I think it was about 150 questions that had been uh, uh, submitted mm-hmm. by supervisors to say the questions that they had asked in the past in a, in a VIVA. And I put all of these together in a in a document, and then I spent like the two months before my viva, literally asking myself the question and out loud answering it, and then writing mm-hmm. notes, and then go moving on to the next question, and then and if I couldn't answer the question, then back to the thesis, find the information, and really considering it, and that might seem over preparation for something like uh, what you had to go through because obviously, uh, already published. Mm -hmm. But it really helped um, me kind of just get into the mindset of answering questions. And I think it is is a little bit more, uh, you know, that um, you you questioned whether it was an investigation, whether it was an examination, whether it was a celebration, like these types Mm of um, defences, I think, mine was very much an investigation. Um, They were very thorough. And uh, I was uh, very lucky to have as one of my, the external supervisor, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Erling, who's also been on uh, the podcast, uh, who was an expert in world Englishes, uh, specifically in uh, attitudes towards English in non-English speaking countries. Mm -hmm. So she was very um, pointed in her in her questions, which allowed me to then see how I had to improve it. And like I said, it was about eight months between the end of my uh, Viva and then when it was finally published. Um, you, you say that your thoughts beforehand would maybe that not much preparation was required. Do you think that that would be more in the celebration type of Viva rather than the investigation type? I mean, would your advice be that if you know you're going to be investigated, that, you know, pre investigating yourself uh, would be a a recommended strategy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And even for the more celebratory defenses, Hmm. we do see that practicing answering questions is excellent preparation, Hmm. even for the the type of questions that one gets in the Netherlands, which can be very long questions, preparing Hmm. to say the to know how you will address a a question that has so many aspects to that and and how you will, for example, take notes while uh, the question goes on is actually very important. And we do see that candidates that have a mock defense and that prepare for that asking of questions do tend to to stumble less during the defense itself.
0: Mm. Well, when you talk about multiple uh multifaceted questions uh are you thinking more in the area of, of kind of questions that uh i ask in this podcast where you're saying so you, you chose this method of analysis and you chose it, this one for the quantitative this one for the qualitative uh, this uh way of uh ranking the responses this way of tagging the comments and things like that uh, uh could you walk us through the decisions that you made in compiling the data and then, and so that kind of question is would that be something or, or could you give us an example of a question that you answered in your defense
1: it's been a while since I had my defense <laughs> um so I don't remember the exact question but I do remember that my first question was from um, an external committee member
0: hmm. from
1: the United Kingdom I know he had um a lot of research in my field. And so I was quite intimidated by his presence in the first place. And then I also took me a little bit of time to adjust to his accent. uh, As I'm I have studied in 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 the United States and I'm more Mm -hmm. familiar with the accent from there. So it, it took me a moment to adjust to that. And I remember his question really had it was a long introduction and then it really had three sub questions and he said i want you to answer three things the first one is this and it was long the mm. second is this and the third one is this and i remember mm. i didn't take notes and i started to reply the first one i i addressed it in a with a long answer the second one i addressed it with a long answer and then i sort of blanked and said and i forgot what your third question was mm. so then i when I got to the next uh, committee member, I took notes of the the parts of the question that I had to address, but I didn't do it with the the first committee member. And then certainly something that in hindsight, I would have done differently.
0: Yeah, I I did my, apart from the work that I did by myself, um, in you know, labeling up the thesis and, um, you know, preparing From uh, questions from actually from another university, because there was nothing that my university Mm -hmm. actually did to prepare it, apart from one thing, where I did a like a thirty-minute mock viva with uh, my supervisor, Mm -hmm. and she gave me the one piece of advice. The one piece of advice that whenever I was writing or speaking, that I always took uh, into into everything was just answer the question. Like, what do you want to say? don't mm-hmm. preface it don't give a long background to it uh say what you want to say answer the question if you then want to go on and give more detail please feel free to do so um but she was always say like whatever the question is answer that first and then you can go on um but always kind of that is one piece of advice that uh, I got which was mm-hmm. so yeah if especially long multifaceted questions it can sometimes be difficult to hold on to the uh, um the point Okay, um, so let's uh, address the contents of uh, your findings what what did you find and and based off that, are there any pieces of advice that you can share with our listeners?
1: Yeah, the first finding is that the vast majority of people who filled out the survey did not have any formal preparation in terms of a course to prepare for the defense, Mm. which could be a standalone course or a course that is part of a sort of a a course that takes place along the PhD where they have various topics that get addressed and of which the defense is one. There's also not that many candidates that actually had a mock defense or a Mm. mock viva. Um, And also some of them did Do reading in preparation, but we already talked about how that can at times be misleading when you're looking at advice for a different defense format. So in terms of finding what really works well, we do see, and it's also confirmed with other studies in the literature, that having a mock defense can work well when it's executed in almost the same setting as the defense itself. Right. So ideally, it is also—it's not just a supervisor or, or a few friends. It is um, another professor, an external member, who can have can bring those unexpected questions from their point of view. Hmm. um ideally, it's in the same space, in the same physical space, so mm-hmm. to create the same setting. Um, And it's executed with the same rigor as what a regular defense would look like. So when it's really in that type of setting, it is efficient to help doctoral candidates prepare for their defense because it really helps them go through the motions of what they'll go through on the day itself. Mm. But it's more like a friendly conversation with a a peer or um, with a supervisor that may still help and may still help a candidate practice answering questions, but it will not have the same similarity to the real thing as one that's executed at almost the same level as the real defense. Mm.
0: It It is something that uh, came up when, well, because I was talking to uh, a, in an interview that we've done before um, with uh, Anna Sophia Hoffmeyer. Mm. And the format of the interview that we did was a Was a was a mock defense because she was going to have her defense at the university. I think it was the University of Osaka, Um, Mm -hmm. and of course she aced it. And you know we we had no real uh, issues with that. But it was an investigation type viva or oral defense, and so we had a whole interview where I asked her these questions. And one of the questions um, I asked was the very first question I received in my Viva, which was why Why did you do this? You've spent eight years of your life and you've written a book of 120,000 words, why did you do it? And I think that's one of the first ways that, uh, if I was you know, advising people to prepare for a defense, it's to go back to the very beginning mm-hmm. and uh, walk yourself forward in a narrative fashion, and then think about the decisions that are being made. So um, if I could ask you about your, your PhD, what what was what was the topic of it and um why did you choose that topic
1: yeah so the topic of my phd was the sheer capacity of reinforced concrete slabs subjected to concentrated loads. Mm-hmm. and that's already a mouthful so essentially a concrete slab is like a floor uh, a two-way spanning member you apply a single load on that mm-hmm. and essentially with That model represents is a bridge. Mm -hmm. There are bridges that are made of these floors of concrete uh, so they don't have beams or other members that carry load in just one direction. They have these uh, just slabs and the the concentrated load represents a truck or a wheel of a truck and the reason why I studied the topic was that in the Netherlands there's a large number of bridges that Mm -hmm. are of this type of slab bridges and When you calculate them with the new codes, so the codes have changed over time, and there's been a big change from national codes to what are called the Euro codes. So these are codes that are used in all of Europe. And if you now calculate those bridges that were built in the post-war decade, Hmm. you would actually have to, many of them have to close them and replace them. I'm saying this with with not much nuance to it and there's more (laughs) -hmm. more options to it in terms of strengthening and uh, limiting the load on them uh, by restricting the vehicle types that can pass. But the real question was, well, if these bridges are there and they don't even show any distress and they don't show cracks or anything, should we worry about them? Or do they have like an Secret extra mechanism in them to carry loading. And uh, for that reason, I, of course, I I was very intrigued by the question. I wanted to know if there was uh, extra capacity in these slabs. And we did a large number of experiments in the laboratory. We spent two and a half years testing uh, half scale bridge elements, so to say. And um, we found out that, yes, slabs have enormous capacity to carry load in the width direction Mm. so they what we have in the codes is based on experiments on one-way spanning members on beams and the slabs have these this very large internal redistribution capacity as we call it so they are actually much stronger than when you calculate them with the code and with that we could develop methods that then can identify which bridges fulfill the requirements and which ones may need further investigation
0: Mm. Uh, fascinating when i was actually putting together some um, work for our engineering department in english i looked Mm -hmm. into the importance of concrete as a building material in the netherlands um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because of the uh, how many bridges and how many uh, you know waterways have to be protected against and and how you know this it, it being a a non-porous, strong load-bearing material. Um, mm. Again, just more hot engineering talk here, but also when um, uh, it, uh, bridges, uh, whenever I think bridges and I think the Netherlands, I think about the bridge at Arnhem and uh, the bridge too far and Sir Bridget Attenborough and, and uh, Sean Connery come to mind. Mm. So, um, But mm-hmm. necessarily what drew you to that topic? So what was your motive? Was it that you had to choose a topic that was related to concrete? Was it that you were interested in, you know, developing processes in the future? Were you concerned that these older bridges were, you know, up, not up to standard and something had to be done, so you needed to do, to do the work? What, what was your main motivation for that topic?
1: yeah I wanted to to solve a puzzle essentially. So mm-hmm. I remember that my interest in shear and other mechanisms like punching, mm-hmm. which is two-way shear, and torsion, which also causes shear stression stresses started already when I was doing my my research or my master's in Belgium. and I I struggled with learning the the topics in class. It really took me a lot of time to understand and to understand the uncertainties involved with it. And I took that with me as I went to do my second master's. And then I actually did my my thesis already on on punching shear, so two-way shear. And then I was looking for the next step. And I saw this uh, position that was not really advertised, but there was a description on the website of the Concrete Structures Research Group that they were going to start research on the shear capacity of slabs, and I thought, mm. well, that's one of the things that I'm really interested in. I'll, I'll shoot an email to see if they still are looking for somebody for that position, and that's mm. how ultimately I I started researching the topic.
0: I think that that's an important thing to bring up when we're talking about uh, PhD. So the the defense comes at the usually towards Either at the absolute end or towards the very end of the process, definitely after you've done all your data collection and you've 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 written it up, uh, at least uh, initially for the thesis. And it's that it's that motivation, it's that interest that gives you um, energy at times when you know you're 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 feeling quite low. I mean, I during my PhD, I changed my job, I think three times. I I got married. I had two children during that. Um, near a decade of actually working on it. Mm-hmm. So there are times when you don't have the energy, when you don't have the kind of motivation, but if you have that initial uh, interest, I think that can help you uh, get back mm-hmm. to it. So based on the findings of your uh, of your investigation, have you made any recommendations either to colleagues individually or to the faculties of the universities that you're working at that they should change the way that they prepare their students for their doctoral defense?
1: I will answer this for both of my institutions where I work. And for Delft, I, well, we haven't really changed the way we prepare doctoral candidates, but it is something that I keep in mind for my own candidates and the mm. candidates in my research group that I share these findings with them. And I say, hey, think about these things when, when you prepare for your defense. And I've talked with them uh, to, to give them some tips based on this is really what the data says. And uh, perhaps that's a good addition to just the stories of people who, who recently graduated. And since these are stories from people in the same situation that have gone through the same format, they are helpful. It would be a a random story from somebody in a completely different defense format as we discussed before that. That's a different uh, set of information there.
2: Mm.
1: And then for my university here in Ecuador, um, we are uh, mostly an undergraduate institution. We do have as well professional master's programs and a few um, research masters. Um, We also have one doctorate in microbiology Mm-hmm. Um, but there's more faculty who are combining teaching at university with working on their doctorate at a different university, which is typically mm-hmm. in Europe or North America. And I was actually I was seeing today that I got an email from SHIFT, which is the um, institution of our university that focuses on training faculty. Mm-hmm. And that is training in terms of um,
0: pedagogical
1: skills but also they organize um, lectures on a number of different topics that may be of our interest and they have book clubs, etc and they sent me an email saying hey uh, wouldn't you want to talk to the ones who are preparing their their doctorate about how to prepare for their defense so uh mm. it, it's very timely that you ask this question as the email came in just today
0: oh, that's, in, that's very interesting and uh... What what kind of things are they are they wanting you to do are they, are they is it going to be like just an oral presentation Q and A I I panel? think it
1: will be typically it's a like a short workshop so they typically these are um, workshops of an hour and a half two hours in which we combine often some exercises with sharing findings presentations.
0: Hmm. And uh, would this be something that's being held online or uh, in a physical space?
1: That's still to be determined. We were mm-hmm. uh, just looking at the the very first IDs to see how my findings can serve them. So that's uh, still to be determined, and I still have to answer the email.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, I, I hope that hope that works out. Um, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a, a kind of final question, but a, a kind of amusing. Uh, that i have is it seems like with the kind of like the uh acceleration of uh academia and kind of like the need where we used to say that you know uh, uh an undergraduate degree basically is is What's necessary to, you know, enter the workforce? So mm-hmm. it's not enough just to have a high school education. Then it became you need to have a master's degree if you want to gain access to higher levels of, you know, a, a, yourself as a professor. You certainly need to, you know, have a PhD and publish your work and, you know, continue into this area. Um, are you finding that more people are n- not just wanting to but needing to uh, gain a PhD? Uh, in both the place in both the Netherlands and in Ecuador, has there been this kind of acceleration and push towards people getting higher and higher degrees?
1: Yeah, certainly in Ecuador, there's been a major push to for people to get PhDs, especially faculty, hmm. and um, that came with changes in the law about I think it's about ten years or even more ago when it was said that universities had to um, have at least 70% of their faculty with PhD. Right. And at that time, that was a very revolutionary idea because maybe 20 years ago, it was professionals who were teaching and the vast majority of them had undergraduate degrees. Yeah. And we've seen um, a very big push towards people with research degrees and, and doctorates here in the country. Mm-hmm and in the netherlands there's also more and more the i would say appreciation of the phd mm-hmm. as something that can serve not just people who will want to become a professor mm-hmm. but as a a degree that shows that you have a deep level of understanding of a certain topic as well as that you can easily acquire new skills and that you're able to carry out maybe a large project or a large piece of research individually so and and independently and that's something that we see shift in the industry in the Netherlands that in the past maybe it was like why would you go do a PhD if you can with a master's get a good job and that's still something that plays a role that especially it's at many times it's hard to find Dutch people who are interested in doing the PhD
2: Mm-hmm.
1: right after the masters but what we see more and more is that people mid career return to university part time to yes. do a phd
0: yeah i think that's a it, that would be a, an important development i think in the way that uh, postgraduate degrees are viewed i mean i'm someone mm-hmm. who has already said on this podcast numerous times that i don't think people should go to university until they're at least 25 they need to have some experience of getting a job keeping a job getting a promotion earning money paying your bills Mm -hmm. and then knowing exactly what you want to focus on if you want to take it further and the idea of like a um, mid-career part-time postgraduate degree either MA or taking it up to PhD I think is something that universities should be looking at Um, but again my experience is only in Japan and most uh, people don't tend to do that they don't tend to either have the motivation or the opportunity to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's nice to hear that, well, obviously, it would be somewhere like the Netherlands that is encouraging people to, as you say, when you get a PhD, or if you get a PhD, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're an expert or an authority in a single thing. So I mean, sometimes there's that, uh, there's that, you know, appeal to authority fallacy that people have, I've got a PhD, so I know better. But it is that skill of managing the project, of you know understanding what you need, why you want to do it, what you need to do, and how, and then kind of breaking that down and, and showing a focus over several mm-hmm. years. So, um, basically, as a as a final question, um, are you going to take this uh, research on to you know, see how the preparations for and the the process of taking a PhD can be improved in various places, or is there another direction? That your uh, research is going to take you from now
1: yeah it's a great question and i'm pretty much wrapping up the research that i had been doing with regard to the doctoral defense um, with uh, a paper that has just been accepted that is related really to the defense formats and the building blocks as i wanted to make a contribution to the discussions in the european union uh, on whether we should have sort of a uniform defense format and mm. why i don't really want to answer the question uh, if we really need a uniform format in europe i do think knowing what makes what is similar between the formats and what are the differences is a good starting point to mm. to really see what you're discussing because you you could say that the sort of the aesthetics of the defenses are so different amongst the european countries that you could mm. say it's 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 impossible to find common ground. But if you break down the defense into the aspects and building blocks, you see that there are similarities that could form a common ground, mm. whether that's necessary or not to have uh, the same format through Europe or not, that's an, a different discussion, but there is a common ground that can be found.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, back when I was in university, low those many, many years ago, uh, the program, the, the EU program, uh, which, you know, uh, the UK not no longer part of it, maybe, but mm-hmm. university institutions maybe uh, still part. I think it was called Erasmus. Is that still is yes. that still going on? <laughs> and of course the the Bologna Accords and the Concord agreements about you know cross uh, you know multi country uh, exchanges of students. Um, if gets into the graduate area, it would be nice to know that there was some kind of standardization so that students, if they want to take their postgraduate degrees in other countries that they they know what mm-hmm. they're aiming towards. Uh, do you see that do you think that that will be possible? are you are you confident that this might occur sometime in the next five to ten years?
1: I think it's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but whether it will happen or not, I think it's more a political question and perhaps mm-hmm. the Uh, the feeling of the times is that there is more opposition towards more European unification, and that may perhaps play a role in these opportunities taking more time to develop. Uh,
0: I would say that if it was to occur, you're you're the perfect person to do it. I noted this uh, when we talked in in your previous paper that I was impressed Mm -hmm. about how you're able to Uh, draw in people, collaborators from uh, around the world to get this kind of holistic view of, at the time you were looking at how uh, COVID had affected people in academia, and now Mm. looking at how people prepare for uh, doctoral defences. And you said that you found representatives from every continent on earth, which is Mm -hmm. remarkable, and uh, I think is something that is a a sign of a a well-organized project. And so I I congratulate you uh, on that. So uh, we've been speaking today with uh, Dr. Ava Landsucht from uh, University uh, of Quito and also Delft. And the topic, uh, the paper we've been talking about is the effectiveness of doctoral defense preparation methods. So if you are in The process of getting your PhD, or if you're thinking about doing it, it's certainly a paper that I would uh, recommend reading. I I got a lot of useful information from it myself as well. So, thank you very much for your time today, Dr. Lansugt.
1: Thank you so much for having me today.
0: And I hope we'll have a chance to talk again in the future. Thank you. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is If you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.